Hello, this is The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, a week to go before David Cameron's emergency budget. But has his economics guru, Alan Budd, given him the green light for big spending cuts? We would like people to think that in 2011, there's about a 40% chance that the economy will grow by between 1.5% and 3.5%. And while government ministers make free with a C word, C for cuts, obviously, whatever happened sorting out the banks? Actually, banks have got to come back and be linked into the productive economy, give credit, give financial advice to businesses that are actually going to grow real money, not, not illusory money. And as the pressure on the bosses of BP and the Prue intensifies, we ask, who'd be a CEO? This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio today, I'm joined by three economics heavyweights. Economics editor, Larry Elliott. Economics correspondent, Philip Inman. And Will Straw, former Treasury civil servant turned leading lefty blogger. He runs a website called Left Foot Forward. Welcome to you all. Hello. First, let's talk budgets and black holes. When David Cameron took office, he appointed Sir Alan Budd as his forecaster general. Budd was made head of a new office for budget responsibility, created to come up with independent forecasts for growth and borrowing. Well, his report on Monday was perhaps a bit too independent for ministers' tastes. Borrowing, Budd said, wouldn't be as high as the Tories warned, while growth is set to be lower than the previous Labour government promised. All our findings are very uncertain. That's simply inevitable. But we would like people to think that in 2011, there's about a 40% chance that the economy will grow by between 1.5% and 3.5%. And by 2014-15, there's about a 50% chance that the deficit will be below 4% of GDP. We do have to think of this as a completely new forecast, that uh, we started with a clean slate. Of course, the Treasury has helped us to produce the forecast, but we've put our judgments into them and we've reached different conclusions. Sir Alan Budd there. Larry, let's begin with you. This isn't quite what David Cameron and George Osborne had in mind when they appointed Sir Alan Budd to come up with his report. No, one way of interpreting it is that it actually makes Labour's case for it in the period up to the election. What Labour was saying then was that the recovery was pretty fragile, and that's what Alan Budd is saying. Growth is going to be lower, not just this year and next year, but actually lower than the Treasury was forecasting every year up till 2014-15. And actually the deficit is not quite as high as people imagine. Tax receipts are a bit higher, spending has been a bit lower. So the deficit is coming down a bit more quickly than Treasury thought previously. I mean, what the Tories have done is, is latch on to Bud's view of the structural deficit, because growth is going to be lower over the next four or five years, the structural part of the deficit, the bit that's supposed not to go go away when the, when growth picks up, is actually a bit higher than, than Darling said in the budget in March, and that's what the, the what's what the Tories have latched onto. Because what you've got to remember is that this OBR report is part of a carefully programmed series of steps, which led from the general election all the way through to this emergency budget. Osborne and Cameron need a lot of cover for what they're doing and so everything they've done since then, the £6 billion worth of early spending reductions, the setting up of the OBR, the OBR report, various Cameron speeches saying that the black hole is even worse than we thought, all that is being built up to to create this idea that the Tories have inherited a really unholy fiscal mess that they need to take very draconian action early on to tackle. Will Straw, I want to come back to politics in a second but As a former Treasury Mandarin, can you just tell us 
how fudged are the forecasts? There's a team in the Treasury that does this forecasting over a period of time and they have a whole series of assumptions that are set out in the back of the budget and they give the uh, range of forecasts to the um, Chancellor and it is true the Chancellor has some discretion over which number appears in the budget book but that's very much within the range that they've been given. And what George Osborne... So when he chooses what number, what do you mean for like the public sector net borrowing, for instance, he says it'll be this number in 2013? No, so the the key number that they're picking is on the growth forecast and the rest of the assumptions fall from that based on uh, all the assumptions that are plugged into the system and what the Chancellor sees as their growth forecast and the rest of it falls from that Uh, and what they've done on this occasion is say that actually we're going to leave it to this new independent body Mm. to make the growth Mm. forecast uh, to, I mean basically close down the range and say where they think it's going to end up. And can you think of any examples where a Chancellor has been notably more optimistic than Treasury civil servants would have been comfortable with? The interesting thing about the uh, growth forecasts from last time is that commentators were saying they thought it was optimistic, but not anywhere near to the extent that David Cameron was claiming. During his response to the budget in March, he was saying that uh, this was way out of line with the Bank of England's uh, projections. Actually, it wasn't. And when you went and looked at it, they were very much in line. Right, Philip, let's uh, come back to you on the on kind of the Osborne case for these spending cuts because as Larry was saying there's very careful choreography going on it completely undercuts what George Osborne's been saying it does but I think you've got to look at why we're doing this in the first place the, the idea we're doing this first place is because we're Greece you know we're going down the pan just like Greece and Spain and Portugal this is the Tory story and this is the Tory story isn't it and uh, and I think if you look today uh, you look at um, what got Greece is going through and Spain they're having to pay even more for their bonds today you know to raise money to finance their public sectors they've got to pay even more today and we've paying less you know ours is going down the separation between countries deemed to be fine and those that are basket cases is becoming more stark who's driving this investors are driving this these are the people who are lending us money and saying we'll only lend it if it's risk-free and very high returns and uh, we're saying okay right well we'll do whatever those markets tell us to do but they're not telling us that we're a basket case they're not saying that they are saying that Greece is Greece did lie about its public sector debt it did it hasn't got a very big economy and it's difficult to see how it's going to grow out of its problems but that isn't the UK but the weird thing about the Conservatives in Greece, I think, is that the Conservatives for years banged on about how it would be a disaster for Britain to join the euro, as Greece did. And it would have been, obviously, for Britain to join the euro, as Greece did. But now they're using Greece as an example of, of, of how Britain could be. Well, obviously, Britain can't be like because Greece. We're be, because euro. we're not in the euro. Because we're not in the euro. Because, you know, Brown did keep us out of the euro, which is one of the, one of the good things Gordon Brown did do. In Britain, what would happen would be that the first line of attack here would be the, the sterling exchange rate. And, and if you look at what's happened to bond yields here, even during the election campaign when there was real... Th- supposedly real threat of a coalition government and hung parliament, bond yields barely rose at all. So markets are not fretting madly about the level of, of, of Britain's debt. They, the markets don't perceive Britain as another Greece. And in fact, you know, quite a lot of the intellectual underpinning for, for what the government is planning next week, I think is pretty shaky. OK, well, let's move on then to the budget next week. Where does all this leave Osborne? What, I mean, what, what kind of predictions are you going to make for next next Tuesday? Well, I think they're going to go ahead anyway. I mean, the spin that was coming out of the Treasury yesterday yeah. was that they were taking the structural deficit more seriously. And than Bud the, was too optimistic. And, and, and they were saying that Bud was admitting that he was too optimistic about the level of um, market interest rates and so on. All the signs from Osborne and his team were that they, it was full steam ahead for an austerity budget. 
How austere is austere? I think they might take 15 billion, 20 billion extra out of the economy over and above what Labour were doing through a mixture of spending cuts and tax increases. Starting this year or going next year? Well, I think that if they took money out straight away, if they say they raise VAT overnight, so it starts on the 1st of July, I really start to question whether we were back in the early 1930s before Keynesian economics took off. Because if they did that, they would just kill the economy stone dead. I think that if they bring in tax increases, they've got to start in, in April next year otherwise there's a real risk of pushing the economy back into recession but will that leaves anyone in treasury with a big logistical problem because if you start announcing vat rise to come at some point in march or if you announce especially a capital gains tax rise to come in march then that's a license for everyone with a second home to start flogging their second homes now well i mean you always create perverse incentives when you make any changes to the tax system but i think the really important issue here is that this is ideologically driven and masochistic. They want to go further than Labour's plans and a lot of people thought that even Labour's plans were potentially bringing down the deficit too quickly. But they want to do it uh, to a greater extent and while they're doing this, they also want to cut taxes. Let's not forget that they have in the coalition agreement with the Liberal Democrats five tax cuts. They want to cut the uh, headline rate of corporation tax. They want to raise tax thresholds, so essentially income tax comes down for middle income earners. They want to put off the national insurance rise. They want to freeze council tax uh, for two years. And they want this tax break for marriage couples. You've got to pay for those things. So what they're doing is being masochistic in bringing down the deficits, but also ideological in saying we want the overall size of the state to be smaller even than it was at the start of the recession. And they're doing this all under the pretense that Britain's heading for a Greek tragedy. And that's been blown open yesterday. Okay, but not all of those pledges are meant to happen within the first couple of years. Some of them are meant to happen over the course of a parliament. Mm. Give us a hard prediction. Give me one thing that you think Osborne is definitely one measure that Osborne's going to announce on Tuesday. I think he will certainly announce some changes to the uh, tax threshold uh, the, for, for where the base rate of income, income tax, tax kicks in. That was something that uh, they agreed with the Liberal Democrats. It's very important to the Liberal Democrats. It was perhaps the most important part of their manifesto. Uh, I doubt you'll see that rising to £10,000 from about 7000 which is um, what the Liberal Democrats wanted. They will recognise that's a very expensive measure, but I suspect there'll be some shift there, and they will say that the capital gains tax increase uh, will pay for it. Uh, and that will be the thing that the Liberal Democrats will be pushing for and will want to show their supporters that they've achieved. So you're expecting some rising income tax threshold and a rising capital gains tax? Uh, I think there'll be some rising capital gains tax. There's been too much briefing on this for them to pull away from it. But what you'll see is all sorts of concessions to be made to the Tory right uh, in terms of uh, tapering, in terms of exemptions, uh, which will um, water down the proposals and ultimately uh, mean that it's still the loophole that it's been since Labour first uh, erroneous um, reduced it to 10%. Philip, do you want to chuck in a prediction of your own? Well, I think that they probably will do a VAT rise, and I think they probably will do it instantly. I think they, when they talk to a lot of their advisors, they are saying, go for it. You know, and it's not economics, it's all politics. It's about get the bad news out of the way straight away. Um, and we don't really care about unemployment going up to 3 million. That's not our issue. Larry, do you agree? I suspect that VAT will go up, although there's always the chance that Osborne will try and cut the cake a different way. I think that it's possible that he will cut spending by even more than people imagine, or that he will um, really say we're going to get radical with the welfare state and start to um, cut um, universal benefits like child benefit and so on. So, I mean, I think it's possible that he will he will he will he will say, well, I've managed to avoid a VAT, but the price of doing so is 
welfare reform and even deeper cuts in public spending but I suspect that in the end there will be a VAT rise but I don't think it will be instant I think it will be it'll be spring of next year because because they're wo slightly worried about inflation and they also want the sort of stimulus to spending that a, the post-dated VAT increase would bring they want the private sector so they want to say we'll bring a VAT rise yeah, in they, March. They, they want to get the economy moving before the VAT rise comes in so that, that's why I think that will happen. Will I think um, Larry's on something there because they've got the spending review which they plan to do in the autumn and that will be where they look at the departmental expenditure mm. limits but there's this whole other chunk of government money which is essentially benefits uh, and it's those things that traditionally you would announce in a budget. So what they might do is say, uh, okay, these are the tax changes we're going to make and this gives us this amount of money to reduce the deficit uh, and then we need to go further so we're going to make these benefit changes. I don't think they're ready to do child benefit yet because they've got some easier targets. There's the family tax credit, the 545 quid you get if you earn over roughly about 30 grand. The Lib Dems are quite happy for that to go as the price for their rise in income tax thresholds. OK, we'll see you next week. Leave your thoughts on the blog at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. Make sure you subscribe for free while you're there. So every podcast gets automatically delivered to your MP3 device. Can you tell I'm reading this? It takes all the hard work out of listening. It says here. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Now, whatever happened to sorting out the banks? It was the big issue a year ago, yet now even Labour leadership candidates are noticeably holding back on talking tough on bankers. But in an attempt to regain the high ground, two groups have published manifestos for better banking. The Consumers Association, which, and a new economics foundation, whose Lindsay Mackey explained what they want. A lot has happened that's not being talked about in the Westminster arena. Businesses are still desperate for credit. And I heard the other day from the um, a group of small businesses that actually what they're doing now with the credit they need for their business is they're borrowing from their family, they're putting it on their credit cards. This is incredible. And that's what's been happening. It's been an absolute starvation of credit. And the government has got to do something about that because we're not going to get growth, we're not going to get revenue. So what do you and a new economics foundation want to do? First of all, we'd like this banking stuff to be talked about and to be acted on at the centre, not just a periphery, because there are kind of worrying signs now. You can see this week people saying, well, actually, the deficit was caused by, you know, very um, extravagant previous government or whatever. Nothing really to do with the banking crisis because the 70 billion was separate to our deficit. And actually, what is it that's saying is we don't really need to do anything about banking. And what we at NEF would like to do is we'd like to take banking pretty much by the scruff of the neck and say, look, you got us into this. Now we're going to tell you what we want. And what we want is they've got to be forced in some way to give credit to businesses locally. And that means beyond London. That means up in the north, it's Scotland, the cities of the north. And you do that by making the banks have a different system. Because at the moment, they say, and it's right, they've got a very centralised system. You know, you go in and ask for credit at your local bank. You won't have a local bank manager, probably, because the local branches have gone. If you're a small business, your request will go to a sort of computer. And it is literally the computer says no, or the computer says yes, or the computer takes six months. Um, so that we've got to have a localised system of banking. And of course, NEF is very, our, our absolute um, a number one priority for us is to have a banking system based on the post office, to have a post bank. And we think the government could do that relatively cheaply, and that would galvanise local economies. Um, secondly, I think we want to have a universal banking obligation so that banks have to serve the productive community. And they've been completely 
divorced from that in the last 10 years. They've gone chasing, you know, the great large sums of the um, sieves and um, credit default swaps and so on. Actually, banks have got to come back and be linked into the productive economy, give credit, give financial advice to businesses that are actually going to grow real money, not, not illusory money. You bring banking back into the real economy. Okay, so you have the former scourge of the banks, Vince Cable, in charge of the Department of Business. This should surely be a golden time for you to push all of these ideas home. He did say last week in his first big speech, he said, we have a seriously dysfunctional banking system. I'm hopeful that he recognises the problem. I think what he does about it is interesting. And I don't think setting up this banking commission, which is, I think, going to take a year to report, don't think that's the answer. Lindsay Mackey from the New Economics Foundation there. Well, it's interesting that Lindsay's talking about uh, better banking because actually if you look at what the five leadership candidates for the Labour Party are talking about, banks don't really focus in it. Why? why? Well, it may be that that's not been where the party's been focused and it's been more focused on matters like the deficit, but I think it's a great... Uh, shame, a great error. Um, there are some extremely um, important recommendations in the report that came out at the weekend, the, the Witch Report, and there seems to be something of a cross-party consensus uh, building up on this. And there are you know, a number of um, extremely smart economic thinkers, um, like Will Hutton, who are suggesting that breaking up the banks is absolutely right. And there are two ways to do this. One is um, what people call the Glass-Steagall separation between investment and retail. But another is to look at the overall structure of banks in the UK and recognise that we have high concentration in very, very large banks, quotes, too big to fail. Uh, and maybe we need to look at what happens in Germany and in America, where there's a much greater number of banks more regionally uh, placed that pose less of a systemic risk. Larry, you've been to see the great man, St Vince Cable. What's your impression of how far he's going to move on tackling banks? Well, I think he'd like to move on tackling banks, but he's been somewhat sidelined at the business department. I mean, the, the control over banks re- resides with the Chancellor at the Treasury. I mean, that, that was made clear when the coalition jobs were carved up that Osborne will be chairing the commission into the banks. And it will be him, ultimately, who decides. I think Vince would be quite keen on breaking up the banks, as would I. I think Vince would be quite keen on rather more direct controls over lending, where he does does a bit more say. What's interesting here is that a crisis that began deep in the financial system, exploded out of the financial system and caused a huge recession, has resulted in a political programme for deep public spending cuts. I don't think the Conservatives really are that serious about banking reform because I think they really want this all to be about shrinking the state. That they have now got to where they wanted to get to perhaps 20 or 30 years ago, which is that there is now a very strong mandate for shrinking the state. So I'm not sure it's correct to say we'll see people out on the streets when the public sector is cut, there should be, in my view. But I think that the, you know it, it, it really depends on the strength of the story and the strength of the narrative. And the Conservatives have now got a very strong narrative to tell. And I think that Labour have failed over the last three years to create a story that actually resonates out there in the in the public mind. Will, you're the lefty blogger. Uh, what what has happened to the left counter counter case to what 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 the Conservatives are talking about spending cuts? Well, I think there probably is a case to be said that when you are the governing party and you're uh, you know in the Treasury, then you're confronted daily with the problems and complications with this. And I don't think anyone should suggest that this is an easy process. Um, and the question really is whether uh, Alice Darling went native uh, and decided. Which, you did. which in Larry's view he did. I mean, and I, you don't think so? Well, I think that there are. Um, international coordination problems. You've got America that is really doesn't want to play 
ball with this and it's all focused on its own the, the politics of America and there has been uh, this call for r- some greater regulation of Wall Street but there hasn't been this appetite um, to some of the reforms that would need to but there was quite place. a lot of appetite in Europe for it I mean Sarkozy, yes, that is, Sar- that is Sarkozy and Merkel were really up for it and if Britain had joined them and formed, yeah, a, co- a, formed, formed a coalition of the willing yeah. it would have been a very powerful yeah. coalition I think that now there's there's no doubt I think that the Treasury was captured by the city yeah. I mean look at look at the people they they put in place to have reviews of what went wrong you know David Borg, Wim Bischoff, you know, know, this really is not likely to come up with anything other than we shouldn't really, you know, rattle the cages too much. You know, they're always going to come up with recommendations said, oh, no, city, very important part of our public life, blah, 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 blah. All right, Larry, but we still want to hear Will's case (laughs) for the defence of Labour. When you're in the Treasury, you're going to be in a situation where because of all those interests that are stacked up, it's much harder for you politically or administratively to make those changes. Much easier for a government to come into power with a strong mandate for change, as I believe the Lib Dems did, and to push that through. And what we're seeing at the moment is that the Lib Dems don't have the clout in the administration on those issues to push it through. And as Larry says, Osborne's not interested. Philip Hinman, last word to you. Um, How much do you think the public might get behind the idea of directing bank lending? Or is it too abstract a concept for them to support? I think one of the problems for the discussion we've just had around uh, any kind of protest around banking is that all these concepts have become incredibly difficult. You know, when when you had uh, all our articles were contained words like, you know, collateralised debt obligations and, uh, you know, credit default swaps, trying to get people to uh, build their kind of whole emotional being around protesting around these things was completely, you know, forlorn task. You know, you just couldn't do it. We're finding the same thing with the pensions. We're finding with all kinds of subject areas. But maybe next year when, they, when things really start to you know services start to get cut because we know it's a fallacy that you cut and you don't affect frontline services so there will be things that are going to be cut and when they are cut is when people will say hang on a moment I didn't realize that when you had all this complicated talk it would end up in me losing this local service my library so so now well maybe not your library you might not write over your library you might regret your library but but you know it's poll tax isn't it when those kinds of things come in and actually your standard of living looks like it's going to go down quite a lot that's when you'll start to get out and protest and finally yet more trouble for the people at the top two of our top ceos are facing serious calls for their dismissal no less than Barack Obama has said that if Tony Hayward of BP worked for him, he would have been out of there ages ago. And shareholders at the Pru are holding meetings with the company chairman to discuss dumping CEO Tijan Tiam. Professor David Sims, director of the Centre for Leadership at the Cass Business School, wonders why anyone would want to be a CEO. Exhibit A. Tony Hayward of BP. Okay, I think that it's part of the loneliness of the CEO that you do get under pressure. There are all sorts of scapegoats that he could use, and I think he's actually probably done very well to avoid using them. For example, there were cost-cutting exercises under John Brown, as we know, in BP. Now, does that have anything to do with the engineering problems that they've had with this spillage? I don't know. But in the same way as... President Obama has been casting around for scapegoats in that situation. Tony Hayward could have cast around for scapegoats, and he doesn't appear to me to be doing it, which is acceptance of responsibility in a way on his part. If we look at the CEO of the PRU, he's taken a very bold line. It's genuine leadership. He's thought of a 
possible different scenario for how you run a company like that. It's a completely different business model from the way that most people are doing things. It was, it was always going to send the shivers up the spines of the shareholders because in a way it actually means that the shareholders were going to find themselves in almost a minority position compared with new shareholders in the merge situation. That illustrates the risk that anybody takes when they actually put themselves in a leadership position. Professor David Sims from Castair. Philip, let's begin with you. Professor Sims raises a very good point there, doesn't he? I mean, why? what's the point of being a manager if you can't even dictate how to run your own business? Well, it's very difficult running a business these days when you've got this sort of army of voracious, greedy shareholders who want you to grow exponentially and while you're doing it, pay them loads of dividends. And uh, it's very difficult to do the same, the, those two things at the same time because if you're going to grow, you need to reinvest your profits and you can't do both things at the same time, or at least most organisations can't. And a lot of the people who are those investors are, as I've said on many occasions in the past, pension funds. They are greedy pensioners who want fantastic golden retirements and they put in untold pressure. They sign up these aggressive investor groups to go and lobby the chief executive and say, what are you doing? You're sat on your ass. You're doing nothing. Get out there. Buy something. And that's what uh, Tijan uh, Tiam did. That's what he said. I'm going to transform this company. I'm going to go to Asia. Asia, fantastic. Everything grows in Asia, doesn't it? Exponentially. So we'll go there. And then the shareholders get cold feet because they don't like risk. They want fabulous returns, but no risk. So what do you do as a chief executive? You go and have a cold shower, don't you? And you think, my God, why have I taken on this job? These people are crazy. And they are. Will Straw, the picture that Phil paints here is rather gloomy. Uh, One of the things that we always used to hear from uh, people on the left, whether it's Will Hutton or Gordon Brown, was that we had to have a different way of approaching business. More long term, more willing to take risks. What's happened to all of that? Well, I think we should carry on talking about it and uh, and hopefully put some changes in place because this is a microcosm for some of the problems that took place in the financial system over the last uh, 15, 20 years. Um, Robert Reich, the former Labour Secretary in America, wrote a book called Supercapitalism where he uh, looked at some of these trends that Philip is talking about um, over an extended 20, 30-year period. And you see these changes in investor behaviour, uh, changes in the remuneration packages at the top of firms, all geared towards short-termism. This is bad capitalism. Finally, Larry, uh, this is a free hit for you. What did you Good, make? Of, like what, what did you make of David Sims' talk about it being terribly lonely at the oh, top? The poor loves, isn't it? <laughs> Terrible for them. All that money, they must be so lonely. What do they do all night? Just set up their counting? I mean, look, these guys, if they get paid enormous sums of money, so if things go wrong. They deserve to be fired. I mean, I, I think to an extent I have a bit of sympathy with, 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 with Tony Hayward. I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, he's been kicked around for political reasons. But, you know, these people are played a print, you know, king's ransom for, for what they do. And if, if, they, if they screw up, they should be fired. They should go. I mean, that, that, that is the downside. That's it for this week. My thanks to Will Straw, Larry Elliott and Philip Hinman. Don't forget to add your voice to our debate at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. This podcast was produced by Tim Maybe. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening.